Are you looking for the raw truth about the U.S. healthcare system? Medical practice manager, owner, entrepreneur, and author James Egidio, with 23 plus years in the medical field, educates and informs his listeners about the changes, trends, and truth about the United States healthcare system. James interviews medical experts in various fields of the healthcare industry doctors, nurses, medical specialists, scientists, and professors that discuss the state of the U.S. healthcare system today, tomorrow, and in the future. My guest has been practicing medicine for over 20 years. He received his undergraduate degree from Marquette University in Wisconsin and his medical degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Followed by an orthopedic surgical residency and a fellowship in orthopedic surgery from Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio. In 2021, after receiving the COVID vaccine, he experienced some unusual symptoms that led to vaccine injury and early retirement. In several episodes of the Medical Truth podcast, I interviewed Dr. Paul Thomas, a pediatrician who reported vaccine injuries leading to autism in his patients. Canadian physician, Dr. William Makis, a radiological oncologist, as well as physician assistant, Deb Conrad, about some commonly discovered outcomes from vaccines and especially the messenger RNA bioweapon COVID vaccine. It is an honor and a pleasure to have on the Medical Truth Podcast, Dr. Joel Wilscog. Hi, Dr. Wilscog. Dr. Wilscog, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Medical Truth Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, James. Thanks. Thanks. So I just wanted to have you share with the audience, the viewers and the listeners, that is, of the Medical Truth Podcast, a little bit about who you are and what you experienced with your COVID vaccine. And we'll go from there. Sounds good. I'm a 53-year-old, unfortunately, medically retired orthopedic surgeon. So I live in Wisconsin. And my career in orthopedics started in 2002. And I was a joint replacement specialist that developed really over the 20 years of my practice, very large, mature practice, and I really enjoyed it. I saw about 6,000 patients in clinic every year and did about eight to 900 surgical procedures, mostly joint replacements per year. I really, as I always say, love my job, but things went backwards and sideways in 2020. So in 2020, I decided to get my first Moderna shot, and it was December 30th of 2020. Uh, getting the shot was very uneventful, but about seven days later, I noticed to my wife when I was getting out of bed one morning that my feet were numb. And when I say numb, it pins and needles sensation. It was odd, and it really didn't get better. In fact, it got worse. So when I started to look down, I would get electrical sensations down my legs. And when electrical sensations are truly putting your finger in an outlet, it was pretty alarming. So I knew something more serious was going on. So I do have a history of some neck arthritis. So I figured out oh, maybe it was a pinched nerve in my neck and really like a, or even a herniated disc in my spinal cord. I picked up the phone, called a friend of mine who's a spine surgeon who ordered the MRI for me. And I quickly got the MRI, I don't know, a day or two later and nothing was new in my neck. So the neck wasn't the problem. The arthritis wasn't a problem. There was no disc herniation. Then move forward about seven, I would say five days. I was literally sitting in my clinic with a patient in an exam room, sitting down, and uh, I tried to get up, and I couldn't stand, and my legs just wouldn't move. And I pushed myself up with my hands off the examination table, and it quickly just fell over. And it was then I knew something more ominous was going on, and I picked up the phone and basically said, I'm coming to get MRIs in my brain and spinal cord and the rest of my spinal cord. I had my C-spine already imaged, but, and very quickly I got diagnosed with transverse myelitis. Transverse myelitis for me is a, I have a lesion on my spinal cord, a demyelinated lesion about the T8, T9 level. I was fairly alarmed, obviously. Quickly saw a neurologist within a day or two. The neurologist said I had to go on steroids, which I did. He wanted to admit me to the hospital, but I did not want to be admitted. I work in hospitals, but I don't want to be admitted as a patient. And then I, the steroids didn't help. I went on IVIG, which is IV immune globulin. That didn't help. 
And then the neurologist said, listen, Joel, you're going to have to take three months off work and see what happens here. He said a third of the people get better, a third of people just get chronic symptoms, and a third of people get worse. So for me, I'm a very tight, I would say, double A personality. And I said, okay, he wants me to take two or three months off of work. I'll take two weeks off. So I did. And then I went back to work and I had two partial operative days. And for me, a partial operative day is about eight hours. I usually do about 12 to 14 hour days, which is what I, how I like to do it. But after those two part-time operative days, I literally had to have my wife pick me up because I couldn't walk after and then I was bedridden the rest of the week. So I, I came to the realization that my career was at risk. So I haven't been back to work since. For me, I was in the group that really never got better. I have about two to four hour good hours on my legs a day. And after that, they get wobbly. And if I overdo it, then it sets me off where I have to be on the couch for a day or two. If I really overdo it, I'm in bed for several days. And then I've also been struggling with neuropathic pain. I've been struggling with dysautonomia, which is your autonomic nervous system is that part of your nervous system that controls involuntary functions like heart rate and blood pressure. My blood pressure, if I don't take medications, runs like 150 to 170 systolic over 100 to 110 diastolic. And if I don't take certain medicines, my heart rate, my baseline heart rate sitting is about 120 to 130. And uh, those things actually have gotten worse over the last year, believe it or not. But I'm okay. I'm living my life. It's certainly dramatically different. For me, the year of 2021 was a challenge I, physically, but giving up your career and realized you had to give up your career, I, it was tough. But then I went to a press conference held by Senator Ron Johnson in D.C. in November of 2021, and there was 10 of us injured that really didn't know each other before. And I left and, and called my wife and said, I know my next mission, which is to really to help these people that are injured by the shots that are truly abandoned. These people who got shots and had an adverse event did what they thought was the right thing, whether or not it was the right thing. Clearly for them, it wasn't. But for whatever reason, they got the shot. And now they're abandoned physically, financially, and emotionally. And I really made it my mission. You know, I use... At this point, really, all of my effort and physical energy I have to help them. And I really serve them. And what I tell everybody is this is not about me. There's nothing more that I want, James, than to disappear in an early medical retirement. This is not fun. This is something that I always say that chose me, this mission. I didn't choose it, but I'm certainly dedicated to serving these people. And I'm blessed to be able to serve these people that really have been abandoned by our society. Yeah. Let me ask you, so how soon after you got the vaccine in 2020? Because it sounds like you got it during the early rollout phase of the actual vaccine. So you're saying December of 2020. So how soon after December of 2020 did you start to become symptomatic? It was about uh, January 6th or January 7th of 21. So it was about six to seven wow. days, about a seven days later. Wow. So that was pretty quick. So you were right away. Yeah, I was part of the 1A group. Obviously, okay. those were the healthcare workers, if you remember that. And I do. Yeah, of course. I can tell you a long story of what I think in the end caused me to get the shot. If I go back a little farther in the summer of 2020, I was part of a study at our medical facility of just seeing who was already antibody positive, And I was negative. And then in September, literally everyone in my clinic besides me, got symptomatic COVID. And it was weird. Everybody was going out sick, but I kept working. And I thought it was so odd. I then decided to get antibody tested. And guess what? I was positive. So I literally okay. had an asymptomatic infection. And I was part of the healthcare system in a system that I trusted my whole life. And I, I literally remember going on the CDC's website and saying, okay, what do I do? And it's at that point was wait 90 days and still get a shot. Right. I knew, and I certainly question, I should have put a lot more thought into it, but again, I can't change the past. Mm. I know about natural immunity, uh, but then a good friend of mine got COVID in early December and almost died. He got every wrong treatment, got, had two, two weeks of horrible symptoms before he got admitted, no early treatment, got intubated early, put in a breathing machine, and that freaked me out a little bit. And I think that was enough where I, as we were all living in fear back then, remember, you're all living in fear because we're all told that we're all going to pretty much die. 
And that's in the end when I got the email that my number was up in the 1A group, I got the shot. Yeah. Certainly, it is what it is. Yeah, it's interesting because I had owned a medical practice for 24 years up until December of 2020. And I remember when I started a medical house call practice in 1997 and into 2003 and four, that particular year, that fall of 2003 and four, it was a real bad flu season and it was a COVID virus. It was called sudden acute respiratory syndrome, which was a COVID virus. So I was a little leery when I had heard about the COVID virus at the very beginning. And then they started throwing all these statistics out about there's a 98.8% chance of survival if you contract COVID that you'll survive it. So I'm thinking, okay, with those odds, the worst that can happen is you get an upper respiratory infection in 2003. I remember 2003 and four, I got a real bad flu from that particular COVID virus at that time with SARS. And I just figured it's going to, and I was in the clinic seeing patients, handling patients, triaging patients, and dealing with patients on a one-on-one basis within two feet of me or even a foot of me, and no no mask, no gloves, of course, washing hands all the time was just par for the course. But uh, And then they start hearing about ventilators and ivermectin, really it was hydroxychloroquine early on. So I knew something, I felt personally that something was up. I have to say, I was on the hamster wheel of life, of work, and I really honestly yeah. worked things, and I just didn't put enough thought into it and admit it. I I openly admit it, but I was working, I work 70 plus hours a week and, but I love it. And yeah, but what I've learned now over the last three years, being in this movement that I'm really in and trying to, into this organization, so much has happened that I can't even believe it, that it's happened. I can't even believe this happened in the country that we live in. I know. You look back, seriously, remember Fauci saying, just give me 15 days. Oh, my God. When you need a prescription filled immediately, go to quickrxrefill.com for an online doctor consultation and prescription. Whether you left your prescription at home while traveling, are in between doctors, or just simply ran out of your medication, visit quickrxrefill.com now. Consult with a U.S. licensed physician online, and within minutes, Get your prescription filled at your local pharmacy. It's that quick and it's that easy. Plus, not only is QuickRxRefill.com safe and secure, they're private and affordable with a 100% money-back guarantee. And they understand how important getting regular medication on time is to staying healthy, especially if you have a chronic condition. Visit QuickRxRefill.com now to sign up and talk to a doctor within minutes. That's QuickRxRefill.com. Flatten the Look curve. What's happened in, in how many mistakes have been made? We've we destroyed, and I don't say destroyed, but we really severely injured the world economy. We mm-hmm. broke up families. People lost jobs. People have been killed. We really haven't ever followed science. We mask people when masks don't work. We've done so many just oddball things that just are, it's a respiratory virus, but remember it was, oh, you got to wash your hands all the time, which doesn't make any sense for respiratory virus. And, uh, and now is the, it's pretty clear that the efficacy of the vaccines, particularly after Wuhan, weren't doing very well. And now the current bivalent booster, if you look at CDC's own website, cover, covers hardly any of the circulating variants, and yet we're still pushing the shots. And we're still pushing the shots, which is just, it's completely anti-science. And then the people that do get injured, oh, first of all, then the mandates, which are truly tyrannical and anti-American and mandates in colleges in the population, the college population who don't need a shot. That's insane. Right. And then the people that do get injured, we just abandon them and pretend oh, they don't exist. They do exist and they need compassion, human empathy. And that's really what I'm, that's the part that I'm trying to do. Yeah. It's. I couldn't believe, again, just all the censorship. Grand Dressen, who is my co-chair, I don't know if you saw her, the lawsuit that got filed. She's never sued anyone in her life. But take a look at her. It's Grand Dressen et al. versus Joe Biden et al. Pretty impressive when your first lawsuit is against the president of the United States. Right. But it's about censorship early on. All the, And again, I think a lot of the direction came directly from the White House to in the Twitter files prove that, right? Because it said... 
when there's an adverse event, even if true, censor it. So it's not to interfere with the narrative. Right. That's evil. And again, I truly believe there's a guy by the name of Stephen Kaplan, who's a Navy SEAL out in Hawaii. He's retired. But he really got me to think about things much differently. Like his, I always thought, okay, we're up against, we're up against greed and we're up against people just seeking power. But I think that it really our enemies. That's something much bigger. It's evil. Oh, it is. Yeah. I said that many times in many podcast episodes is this is good versus evil. And I know you're located in Wisconsin and I'm sure you're familiar with Scott Sher. I've interviewed him twice. In fact, I did a follow-up interview with him about a week ago or a couple weeks ago. But right there in Appleton, Wisconsin, with his daughter, Grace, I'm sure you're familiar with that case. Yep. And he's uncovered so much. And it all goes back to not just the this administration, the previous administration, but it even goes back to Obamacare. It's written right into Obamacare about the treatment of patients that are elderly and are not fit for society. And he's uncovered a mass scandal and epic proportions based on that's built into Obamacare in 2010. And people, your listeners should, and then they probably know about the Tuskegee experiment and look at the history of, right. of medical experimentation. The Tuskegee experiment, as your listeners probably know, is untreated neurosyphilis in mostly African-American men down South. Right. And that study went on from 1932 to 1972. They literally watched them with untreated syphilis, told them they were being treated and watched him die. And our yeah. country did that for 40 years. And it wasn't, our country didn't apologize and acknowledge it till 1996 under President Bill Clinton. So it's those, and I even knew the Tuskegee experiment. And I sometimes rack my brain of why didn't I think more? And again, I just wasn't thinking. I was always just a doer. And really, I was part of that healthcare machine. And I have a much different uh, of healthcare now. It's Healthcare is a revenue-based, procedural-based model, and physicians of today, unfortunately, I'm very critical of them. So many of them are employed, and they just do what they're told. They don't look at data themselves. They don't look at science themselves. Hey, if my employer says to recommend a shot, and they told me to say it's safe and effective, that's what I'm going to do. How often do you think physicians of today and primary care clinics are going into the daily CDC data looking at the coverage for the current bivalent boost for circulating variants, that it's pretty much zero. They're not. And that's why I'm very critical. I think I wrote a piece a while back and I put it on social media. It's called The Employed Physician, The End of Healthcare. And I really think our trend towards physician employment is, was a, is a critical step to cause a decline in quality and value of our healthcare system. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and you have so many different layers involved in this that are, make it obvious that there's a lot of nefarious activity going on. You have the media, like you'd mentioned a little earlier, about the censorship. And we're going to get, I want to get into that a little bit with you and the pushback on that with the media covering a lot of things and dominating the narrative. And then you have the medical community and you have the globalist with the World Economic Forum involved and Bill Gates with the vaccine program. So there's so many things going against the people that to to persuade them into this collective thinking and into this cognitive dissonance and way of thinking that whatever the media says and whatever is the most popular and dominated media outlet is what pretty much persuades people to make the choices because they're even talking about future pandemics already. And they're talking about more vaccines. I interviewed a Dr. William Makis, a Canadian oncologist, radiological oncologist who reports on Substack about the vaccines and how they're killing physicians up in Canada. He knows of physicians that have died from the vaccine that are between the ages of like 30 and 50. It's a much larger project than what a lot of people think. There's a lot more going on right now. And my question to you is, what do you think the future holds in terms of vaccines and more pandemics? Oh, I think this was a beta test for more to come. (laughs) I I really do. I really do. And, And I'm amazed 
how people through a little fear were able to give up so much liberty, freedom, and live in under control. I'm amazed. And people just, I'm amazed that people just said, oh, it's okay. And college mandates, well, I got to get my shot. And I'm fearful. And I think if something doesn't change in our country soon, I think our country in five years will be fundamentally different. Oh, I think less than five years. Yeah. So I think it's critical. And I sense some more, something else coming down the road and it might not be vaccines. You never know. And I'm scared. I'm fearful of, you have President Biden, who is not popular in, in the number one way for an unpopular president to get elected a second term is war. I'm ter- terrified what's going to happen in Ukraine. Something's going to pop up in Ukraine or Taiwan. But I think, yeah, we're, we've let them know. And I would say them is a complicated answer, but them know that with scaring us a little bit, we're willing to live in a world that is classically un-American. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. When this all popped up, too, and this occurred, it was at first it took a lot of people by surprise. It blindsided a lot of people, pretty much everyone, for the most part, because we've never been through a pandemic like this. And I think that people are going to react a little bit differently, but it doesn't matter. They have too much money invested in this project. And I call this I call this a project that. They're not going to stop. Gates even said it right from his mouth. Two things. He said depopulation, right? And he talked about the next pandemic is what he talked about, right? So they're going to push through with the narrative on this. And like I said, it's so multi-layered. I was doing a little research and going down the rabbit hole of quantum tattoos. And I found something really interesting. And I mentioned that. And Dr. Kerry Mahayas and Dr. Sherry Tenpenny mentioned Uh, quantum tattoos early on. And a lot of people are like, what are quantum tattoos? And what it is, they're using a technology that goes under the skin, right? Quantum computing, they use quantum computing, luciferase dye. And the research that I was doing and found a paper that was written in 2019, but the research had taken place much earlier than that in the early 2000s and into the mid 2000s by Dr. McHugh from Rice University. And what it had to do with is a tattoo that gets placed under the skin and is connected to quantum computing. And what they alluded to in the article was, back then, vaccine passports. And this is a technology that Bill Gates has been on the cutting edge of or in getting involved with. We're talking of basically a brave new world of controlling people through computers and transhumanism. And this, they'll call us conspiracy theorists and all that, but this is the kind of research that's taking place right now. And this is the things that they want to do. They want to control us. Yeah. I just want to say a couple of things on Bill Gates. First of all, I think he's the devil. Next, <laughs> he's openly talked of depopulating by 10 to 15%. He's right. unapologetic. And the other thing is I want to say is, People have to realize, too, through this pandemic, what's happened with regards to our currency. How often do you use money anymore? How cash? That was COVID. And how interesting that now we've gone, cryptocurrency is bad, but what about now we all go into cards and we all use our credit cards all the day. And isn't it ironic that they can control that very easily, digital card, your credit card. And don't think they won't. Look at what Canada did their truckers. When the truckers were protesting, the Canadian government froze their personal accounts. Right. So I certainly think you can do that. So say we get rid of, and this is a little bit of Bobby Kennedy Jr., who is intriguing sometimes when you listen to him. Uh, Very easily, if you take Bill Gates' satellite technology with facial recognition from space, combine it with, hey, your currency is this credit card. You can't go five miles from your house. Otherwise, your credit card is deactivated, and we also know where you're at anyway. That, at first, when I heard Bobby Kennedy Jr. say that, I was like, oh, that's kind of conspiracy theory. But when you look at, in reality, what's happened, where we've gone away from cash, and we're on this credit card world, and I think they could easily basically have a digital wallet, and they control it. Sure they could. Yeah, they're doing it now. It's here. It's not if it's going to happen. It's when it's going to happen. It's central bank digital currency. It's terrifying. And I 
don't want to live. I'm going to fight because I know the next pandemic's coming. I know the next some national emergency's coming. And I hope people, and I'm sure your listeners, because of your because they're listening to you, I hope that they're going to be part of the fight. But I really, I want to fight for the American way, and I'm going to fight for my fellow Americans. Again, our call to react, our call to action at React 19 is really just to give these people hope and support. Sure. But again, this whole experience has certainly opened my mind. You know, we go talk about censorship a little bit. There's two different types to me. I look at it. There's two different types of censorship. There's passive censorship. There's active censorship. Passive censorship to me is just no one in the mainstream media picks this stuff up. Like they're still covered. They can have people dropping dead left and right, which athletes and other people have been in young teenagers, but they don't pick it up. So that's one way, but the active censorship through social media is amazing. It, it's just horrible. But I wanted to tell you a little story about my employer. So after I stopped working, I was on medical leave. I was still employed, but for about two years, I was on medical leave. And I've been very vocal from the beginning saying, hey, I got injured and there's other people out there and we need acknowledgement, we need help. So I'm... I know that they weren't very proud of or didn't really like that I was being pretty vocal. And I, I'm not certainly a celebrity or anything like that, but I have a right. decent loud voice, at least in Southeastern Wisconsin. And literally a year and a half, and I've been more and more vocal as time went on. So a year and a half after I had not worked, but I was still employed, they notified me that I was getting investigated for prescribing irregularities. And I said, what? So I hadn't been there for a year and a half. And so it's basically friends and family prescribing, which every pretty much every provider does for your significant other or a person in the OR that needs three days of antibiotics for a little skin infection. But anyway, everybody does it. I wasn't running a narcotic clinic or something like that. And they said, and we can report you to the medical board. So that's an attempt at active censorship. My response was go stick it up your, you know what? Yeah. And I wasn't planning to go back to work. So their threats were meaningless to me. And I ended that conversation and never talked to them except through my attorney since. But yeah, that's the kind of stuff we're going through. Could you imagine someone is going to drum up a, remember after I'm gone, not planning on returning, still technically employed because of medical leave, because my doctor said I'd wait two full years to declare it permanent. And, uh, and then I get investigated. Yeah. It's within the scope of your practice too. Even if you were prescribing a little pain medication for somebody, you're an orthopedic surgeon, right? I still have an MD degree. I can still, I can still, <laughs> yeah. still treat ear infections. I mean, God knows, right. knows a lot of people in this COVID war, there's a lot of Richard Urso is a ENT skull surgeon and does COVID treatment. Again, as long as you're educated enough and yeah. So it's, I didn't do anything wrong. It's just amazing that advocate or healthcare is so evil to to really drum that up a year and a half after I was gone. And I get the hint to shut up. Yeah. Obviously they I don't even know why they did it because they know me enough that it was only going to inflame me exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed Dr. Scott Jensen out of Minnesota. Same thing. He's born in Minnesota, went to medical school there, 2016 family physician of the year. And his hospital instructs him to falsify death certificates in 2020. And he brings that up to the board and he brings it up to CDC and everybody. And Keith Ellison goes after his license and still doing that, still trying to fight him for that. And here's an upstanding citizen physician practicing, doing all the right things, never had been reprimanded ever in his life. And then all of a sudden the attorney general who had a, domestic battery charge against him when he was going through the election to become attorney general ends up filing a case against him. All right. So this is where we're at in this world. <laughs> Everything's upside down. It is. And when you say upside down, it makes me think of the regulatory norms as any new drug or vaccine. Typically things were considered unsafe and ineffective, and they had to prove that they were safe and effective in this situation, it's totally opposite, right? So we, the community out there, have to prove that it's ineffective and show them their own data. And the injured, I feel, are the ones out there trying to prove that it's not safe. The other thing is, remember, 
When you talk about regulatory process and things being backwards, what's two populations we never, ever in medicine experimented on, ever? Children and pregnant women. And boom, we started using this product on both. And from a physician's perspective, it's, it's alarming. But I don't think the community recognizes how many things here are so upside down from a standpoint of science and healthcare. Yeah. It's a lot of- Yeah. And I've told so many people that listen to this podcast and watch it, take the optics of politics out of this. There was so much division going on and still continues. And they'll call people like me or you conspiracy theorists with all this evidence that's coming forthright. There's still people are still saying, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. You're just making this stuff up. Nobody's making this stuff up. This is but I think a lot of that also is the sentiment from the media. They're the ones that are calling people conspiracy theorists. I don't think it's, I think that there's more people than we even know that are think the way we do and know what we know. I truly believe that. I don't believe at this point in time, this far into the whole COVID narrative and the vaccine narrative that people are not aware of what's going on. What do you think? Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think that, I think people in the last six months to me have been seen to are waking up. Yeah. Not the media is giving them the information, but because the, everybody knows somebody who had COVID one, two, three, four times after five shots, or everybody knows somebody that had a heart arrhythmia or a heart attack or a stroke or something five to seven days after their shot. I think it's a grassroots awakening, certainly not an awakening from where the information should be coming from. Remember, the CDC's mission is to, on their website, is to protect the public from drugs and medical devices. Sure. They've utterly failed. And how can they, at one time, be entrusted to protect the population, but at the same time, they also have a conflict of interest because they're promoting it? I always use the analogy of, you know, who controls aviation and the transportation system? It's the FAA, right? So if there's a plane crash, does the FAA come and investigate? No, it's an independent NTSB. So how do we not have independent regulatory agencies to watch what they're doing? Because they're all, it's a revolving door between the federal regulatory agencies and the pharma companies. Look who's on the board and look who's all the executives over at Pfizer and Merck and all those other places. What's prior FDAC people? There's so much intermingling now, so many conflicts of interest. And then again, that pharma money is, and I'm not, this, our, my, our organization has nothing to do with politics. We're completely non-political. We admit it's polarized and we're in a, politi- a polarized or a very political environment. But it shouldn't make a difference. And I look at that pharma money goes to politicians that are independent. That pharma money goes to Republicans and Democrats. It goes to to the federal health agencies and the studies. Remember, people think that, oh, if it's in a journal, it's for real. Oh, my God. Scientific scientific journals of today are completely controlled through pharma and pharma money. Sure. They're woke. It's it's propaganda is what it is. It's sponsored propaganda. Yeah, and somebody may do a study that's true and scientific, but if somebody on the editorial board doesn't like the narrative that it's trying to promote, although scientific, they'll just not publish it. Yeah. And it's that's why, yeah, James, this world right now, what we're going through is so complicated. It is. Uh, But yeah. And that takes me to asking you the question as to what is react19.org and the organization that you found? So React19 is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We're very science-based. We are grassroots. As I've said before, we're a non-political organization, but we're an advocacy organization for those Americans that are injured by the COVID shots. We're here to give them hope, support, We're tired of waiting for help. I basically say our organization is doing what the federal health agencies, health organizations, providers should be doing. So we have really three arms of our mission. We have a financial mission. We've we've raised, we're in the area of $800,000. We've given out in financial grants to those injured by the shots for uncovered medical expenses. We've given out 81 grants so far for a total of $562,000. The average grant is $6,800. Wow. 
I wish I could give out more, but if you look as of April 1st, was the last time I looked for the CICP program or the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, which is the HS federal government program to pay out injured, they've only paid out three claims for a total of $4,500 with an average grant of $1,500. So I'm not, I always wish we could give out more, but when I compare it to what our government's done for these people, it's at least a hell of a lot more than they've done. Yeah. So that's what we do financially. Physically, we've created a bunch of networks. We've created provider networks. We have a mental health network. We're creating a spiritual network. And to really support the injured and have them be able to find people to help them without the gaslighting. 90 plus percent of us, 95 plus percent of us get, get gaslit when we see a provider. Why? I know. I've had it. I had it done a month ago when I saw somebody out of Chicago. As soon as I said vaccine, he rolled his eyes and threw a sheet of paper down on the, on the desk. I mean, there's just so much, you know, so we really want to get around the gaslighting. So we've created those different networks. We're involved in education. We have pulled educational webinars, both for patients as well as for providers. In the emotional realm, we have well over 30,000 people in social media-based support groups. We also have an advocacy network. The advocacy network is a group of social workers and nurses across the country who can be assigned to really newly diagnosed people that are really marginalized. People are really struggling, need one-on-one help. So we'll get them that help. And then lastly, we have a, while we're a 501c3 nonprofit, we don't certainly support any given political party or political candidate. We do let our needs known at the federal level, particularly. I've been out to DC several times. We've met with several politicians really around a couple things. First and foremost, the need for compensation reform. Again, the CIC program has only paid out three injured people in the United States as of last month. So we're working on it. We really want a bill for compensation reform to get through Congress this year. It should be a bipartisan bill. It shouldn't be this BS of them going back and forth. This is just helping people. And remember, the injured are Republicans, Democrats, and independents. Okay, And those politicians should get us a bill signed by the end of this year. So that's one of the big things we do. We have been pretty involved in investigations, too. And we've met with the attorneys behind the House investigations because we have a lot of interactions with people like Janet Woodcock, Walensky, Francis Collins. We've met with Peter Marks, who's the head of biologics, numerous times on audio. And so we have all the recordings which we've handed over. Again, things that we've been told privately, but that won't be admitted to publicly. So I'm certainly hoping that gets out because people need to know this stuff. Yeah. And then we do some other things, looking for research dollars at the federal level, Plus, I've been pushing towards getting a VAERS, VAERS reform, and there's no ICD-10 code for VAX injuries. I laugh because there's an ICD-10 code for fully vaccinated, unvaccinated, partially vaccinated. There's even a, a ICD-10 code for vaccine hesitancy, but there's no ICD-10 code for COVID shot injuries. James, if you don't have a code when you go and see a doctor... It just gets dumped into some unspecified code, and therefore you can't research. You can't go back and do a data search. Isn't that surprising? They don't want an ICD-10 code. The World Health Organization has them specific for COVID vaccine injuries. The United States has just refused to implement them. I've gone through the process, which you're supposed to last December, asked it to be added, had tons of physicians sign this letter. And I applied to have it added to the spring the spring update because the codes are updated twice a year. I never got a response. Yeah. Why do you think that it's so difficult for people to get compensated for vaccine injuries and specifically for the COVID vaccine? The CICP, let's talk about that a little bit. So the CICP is the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. It's the rules of it are very difficult, Okay. There's one year deadline to file, which is very difficult because a lot of people that are injured take over a year to get diagnosed. Uh, it doesn't pay for attorney fees. So attorneys aren't going to help you. Okay. There's very limited benefits and they have very stringent requirements on causation. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. There's really no appellate process. You know, it, it, they're, the HHS, I say that HHS Health and Human Services, is really the judge, jury, and the executioner. So they make their own rules. So 
the only things that they're compensating for now is blood clot, some blood clot and blood disorders, anaphylaxis, mm-hmm. myocarditis. Well, why is that? Because that's the only things that the FDA and CDC has admitted to significant safety signals. That's why we've been screaming. There's the number one adverse event in the COVID shots is the neurological complications. We've been screaming about it. We've even had Peter Marks admit that there is a safety signal in, thir- in women 30 to 45. We have it on audio, okay, but never admit it publicly. So if we can't get these safety signals identified or at least recognized, the compensation is based off the safety signals. And therefore, right. compensation is always going to be very limited. And, and I mean, VARES, and then again, when they look at safety signals, they're depending on VARES, which is an absolutely horrible, it's not, a, it's not an objective database. It's a, I call it a symptom repository. They made it and chose it to be horrible. Yeah. I interviewed Deb Conrad. She's a physician assistant whistleblower in upstate New York. And she had mentioned that she was talking about during the rollout of the vaccine in 2021, that the hospital she was working in, she noticed a lot of vaccine injuries. So she took it upon herself, which she was required to do through VAERS to report this and fill out VAERS reports. So she found herself filling out a couple at the very beginning of the rollout. And then before she knew it, she was filling out 50 a week. She had to do them at home. She got so busy. She was doing about, oh gosh, about 200 a month for a couple months. Oh my! And God. she, yeah. And she brought it to the attention of her hospital that she was working at and the CDC. And she got called up into the office of her supervisor and security escorted her out of the hospital and she lost her job. <clears throat> so she was mentioning that with the VAERS report that for anyone who takes it upon themselves, because patients can go online to the HS's website on VAERS website, fill out these VAERS reports and submit them to HHS, and they're making it an issue with being able to get the application to go through to VAERS and through HHS's database because patients can fill these these VAERS reports out themselves. And I interviewed Warner Mendenhall. He's an attorney. And he highly recommends that anybody that feels that they are vaccine injured to fill out a VAERS report and at least, if not send it in online, fill it out physically, print it out, and send it certified to HS and at least have that on record. Yeah, I certainly do encourage people to submit their bears. The problem is nothing is done about them. That's right. And we're ignoring the data that's there, which is the frustrating part. We have the VAERS system, which is really has a lot of limitations, but then the FDA relies on the VAERS to look for safety signals, relying on an admittedly poor system. And then the compensation aspect from the HHS relies on what the FDA says about safety signals to be included in the compensation. So I I was denied uh, through CICP. I'm one of the early, the denial rate right now through the CICP is 97%. 97. That's correct. I was denied. So they say to me, a temporal relationship, okay, doesn't prove causation. Okay. Let's just use common sense in healthcare, which we used to do. I was a totally healthy person, okay? And within five to seven days after, I have a spinal cord injury and have dysautonomia. And there's how many reports do we need to prove these safety signals? We have 3,400 studies listed on our website of all different types of adverse events. How many do we need to people just wake up and they start recognizing, particularly the neurological ones, because that's the most common one. But right. again, we just still deny science. We're really up. They say we're you know anti-science or misinformation. Yeah, it's completely untrue. We're science. We're woke. We know what's going on. and we. But that's a situation we're all up against. But the injured kind of gets screwed in the whole thing. Yeah. And I agree with you totally. This is not a, this is not a political issue that we're all, no. this is about freedom. This is about taking care of our fellow human beings. 
This it's about is your just... health. It's about your health too. Jeez. It's, if it's... anything, roll the dice and don't take the vaccine. And I'm not recommending anything to anybody, but it's just oh. apparently obvious at this stage of the game. And that's what it is, a game. And it was a big experiment for the last two, three years now that what it's obvious what's happened, right? Yeah. And again, don't you realize you can see, though, that people just want to start not talking about it. Nobody wants to admit they were wrong. I know. Sometimes some people are even so brazen that they double down. Right. But again, and this is one of the things is more and more of the truth's coming out. And I've known and we've all behind the scenes known a lot of information earlier than a lot of it as it gets out in the public. But how do we sometimes I think about how do I deal with all the people? that that were so hurtful to so many people. And yeah. I, someday I hope I can forgive, but I'll never forget. Yeah. And I, I think so many of our relationships are, are forever changed. When I look at the world in a different place, and I've, I now recognize that so many of my relationships before this injury were very contrived. And I got rid of all those relationships. Sure. And now I just focus on genuine relationships and, and stay away from people that I think are just evil. And I'm not dealing with them. But the one nice thing is I'm not working too, so I can. But but it's my family. And I can tell you, I, I when I, around this time when we weren't vaccinated, and my kids didn't get vaccinated then, of course, you know, at, around holidays, they said, oh, we're not going to have the holidays this year, or we're not going to have a birthday party this year. And then you find out after, no, you were just de-invited. They still had it. We just were yeah. de-invited. But that kind of stuff, I'm never going to forget it. Yeah. Hopefully someday yeah. I'll forget. But it's just so interesting if you really think back and you everybody takes a deep breath and they look back at let's say 2020 and where we're at today. It's a lot of things were not mentioned. So there were just so many obvious things, at least I don't know, maybe from my standpoint, just so many things that were so obvious that it not it wasn't kosher. It just wasn't kosher. They never mentioned the immune system. They implemented masks later on. If this, I had mentioned earlier in other episodes that if this was as bad as it was supposed to be, that, and it was an unknown variant of COVID, that masks should have been implemented from day one. There are so many inconsistencies along the way. I even purchased Dr. Judy Mikovits's book, A Case for Mask. I think it was in April of 2020, or maybe even, yeah, April of 2020 or March. And I think by May, it was censored on Amazon. So they didn't want you to know, you know that masks were not effective at all. And where I lived, because I'm in Florida now, I was on the West Coast in Vegas, that they didn't even implement masks until June. Okay. So there were just too many inconsistencies. It just didn't add up. Yeah. Don't forget about, too, the ivermectin hydroxychloroquine. And again, you look back, how do you get an EOA to get an emergency with authorization they can't have any available current treatments that work. Well, so there goes the pool horse dewormer. Ivermectin is one of the safest, I don't want to say the safest, one of the safest drugs in the history of the last, whatever, 100 years. And it is a lot more than a horse dewormer. But again, the narrative was such that it got attacked. And But yet, no, still, there's so many circles that used it and saved a lot of lives. But sure. remember, you can't get an EUA if you have an available treatment. Surprise. And then the use of remdesivir in the hospitals. And then you couldn't visit grandma in the hospital or anybody in the hospitals. And there, most of the deaths took place in the hospital, not outside of the hospitals. Surprise, surprise. And people still are using remdesivir. And still using remdesivir. And, killing and, use, and using on people that are, it's a contraindicated in with liver and kidney disease and diabetes and whatnot. And not making yeah, it out and, of the hospital. And remember, the hospitals got really hit when the, everything was shut down. No doubt about it, right? But there, there had to be. I'd love to see the communications between all the healthcare, the main health care systems and the government. Because remember then when they started getting going with COVID and then started reopening the hospitals, then came all the COVID kickers and the remdesivir kickers and all the other financial incentives they got. Wink, wink, sorry we shut you down, but here, take this extra money. But also take money for extra money for remdesivir when it kills people. Right. Yeah. 
I hope it doesn't take 75 years to get truly all the truth out. Uh, because I re- really say, as Ryan Cole, who's a great physician uh, out from Idaho, says, the truth is in the cells. I actually say the truth is in the data. The truth is out there. It's all out there. Where did the money go? Where really, what are the numbers of all the safety and efficacy data? And I still am amazed how people think the government owns the vaccine data. It's pharma. Pharma owns it. They right. wanted to hold it for 75 years. They wanted to hold it for a reason. Sure. But thank God for people like Aaron Siri, who runs ICANN, and the people that support him financially, who are godsend of this country. Peter um, McCullough. Oh, yeah. There's so Pierre many people. Corey. Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick, Richard Urso, Kat Lindley, and Ryan Cole. I don't want to leave anybody out, but there's a lot of people that have taken a lot of hits, a lot of hits and just attacks, lost their careers. And, sure. Uh, but at one point, without them, there wouldn't be this movement. Robert yeah, Malone. Scott Jensen. Yeah, so I don't if I I don't mean to leave anybody out, but yeah, it truly has been a battle. But it's a battle that I don't really want to be in. Here, I'll tell you. Can I tell you my quick one in five year one in five year strategic plan? So one of the things we're trying to do here is open up the first medical clinic in the United States. Mm-hmm. Opened it's a partnership between the injured us and some medical doctors. So we're going to try to open up the first clinic here in the United States that's focused on the treatment of COVID shot injuries. I think it's going to be, we're going to try to help define what is the gold standard. There's not one, but define the gold standard or standards for the treatment of the COVID shot injuries. So we're trying to do that this year in Texas. We're going to try to get one early next year in Florida. Uh, I think it'll be very symbolic too, that our care has sucked so bad that we had to go out there and do it ourselves. The other thing I want this year is absolutely we need a bill through Congress for compensation reform for the injured. And what we're really looking at is for a transfer over to VICP with retroactivity. Super complicated. I'll leave that there. But I want to tell you my five-year plan. My five-year plan is not to be doing this. That's it. So what we do and what I do is literally what the HHS FDA, CDC, NIH, all the healthcare organizations and our healthcare providers should be doing. They're not. If they were all doing their job, I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't, you may not be here. The whole medical freedom, obviously, movement is much bigger, but from the standpoint of what I do from a co-chair of an advocacy organization for the injured, I wouldn't be here. And I, I unfortunately will tell you, I think I still will be here because I, I think that I'm worried too about the long haulers, which they yeah. need help I, I have empathy on that. They need help too. But really, it's just sad that we're in this situation. But I hope your listeners can, I always say, number one, educate yourself. Look at the numbers. Educate yourself. And number two, do something. Yeah. Why do get people to do something? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. You had an interesting finding on your website, through your website. And what are some of the things since you launched react19.org? for those that are injured who go to the website and I know they have to fill out some type of questionnaire and you had mentioned a list of items I had seen through a previous episode of a interview that you did that help people get through the vaccine injury. And I, you were mentioning a few findings that you had through your website. What are those? You mean in some of our research stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can just give you an overview of some things. And the vast majority of the shot injuries are in women. It's about 80-20. And that's been validated in numerous other studies. So it's vast majority of the, the adverse events are in women, unfortunately. If you have underlying autoimmune disease or a thyroid disorder, you're much more likely to have an adverse event. If you have an adverse event, you're much more likely to have another one and worse on your second one. It's very sad when we look at the numbers, 12% of people okay, that were injured had an adverse event after the first one, and their providers told them to go get a second one. It's horrible. Yeah. The average number of symptoms a person has, okay, because they're really syndromes. That's why we don't really have hard diagnoses yet. They're syndromes. Just the average number of symptoms someone has that's injured is 20. So... Part of what we need research-wise is to try to break all that down and figure out really what's going on and take them from syndromes and trying to get more concrete diagnoses and then work 
after that, then work into more specific diagnostics and treatments. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is we did a survey too that looked at, say, the top 100 things people are doing. And we said, rate them in effectiveness between three is very ineffective, zero is no effect, and minus three is really a negative, very negative effect. It's very interesting that the top six things were not medicines. Number one was a pacing strategy. Okay. And that's, I know that if I overdo it, I decompensate. So pacing strategy is number one, body, I'm sorry, brain retraining, which is a meditation technique or there is a technique and prayer were in the top six. That when I picked up that prayer thing, that when I saw it, that's why I started the spirituality network. And that's why we're doing it because I didn't know how important that was. The other three things in the top six are dietary changes. Low-dose naltrexone is the first medicine coming at number seven. Now, that is this is preliminary data. It's 453 people. The study is continuing. We need a lot more people in this. We're working it over. But just the preliminary findings, I thought, were very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say prayer. I was trying to get a Dr. Newberg on. He does research out of the University of Pennsylvania, and that's his whole research. He's a neuroscientist, neurologist. He's a neurotheologist, and he talks about the power of prayer through uh, illness and injury and just the power of prayer in general. And then you mentioned diet, which is interesting because when you say diet as a whole, and when you drill down to diet now, what are we talking about? Okay, so what we found were it's, it's a dietary change, okay? So we're not sure. This is where we need more study for sure. Okay, so it's just a change in their diet. Now, people that are injured make numerous dietary changes. Histamine is a big one. So right. histamine in, in food obviously causes it – can, it, we already have a lot of histamine problems ourselves, which causes a lot of the inflammation that we have. One of the dietary changes is a low histamine. One of them is a lactose-free. One of them was, I think, like a carnivore diet. One of them is vegan. So what they reported was just making a dietary change was helpful. But this is where we need to really continue the study. Because I really right. want to, what exactly is it? And I'm not sure. But it just, it's still, it, it, I'm just waking I'm a traditional allopathic person. You have a problem, you do a surgical intervention, you're going to do a drug. <laughs> yeah. And what I'm starting to do is really, I'm giving the integrative people, all the functional medicine people, all their credit they deserve. But look right. at our studies. In my mind, traditionally was, was pills or surgery or procedures. Sure. And people are telling us, no, there's a lot more to diet. And there's a lot more to, and the prayer thing really hit me hard. I, it just woke me up that, That's beautiful. About diet and dietary changes, you had just learned about this whole thing. This is a whole new paradigm. Whole new world to me. Yeah, I'm going to say several things in medical school which people don't really know. When's the first time I ever heard about VARES? 2021. When's the what medical training did I ever receive about vaccines in medical school? Zero. How did I, when did I learn about how scientific journals run and what gets published and what never? I remember back, how long was my nutrition course in medical school? Two weeks. I remember a little book, two weeks. Right. Um, maybe it's different now. I doubt it. But it's really woken me up to healthcare and wellness is a much bigger thing than what it is now. We live in a sick model, right? So you're sick, you go to the hospital. They do as many procedures as they can in you to rack up your charges to ridiculous amounts. And we really don't focus on what we're putting in our body and, and, and trying to live in wellness. And I give all the functional and integrative people the credit. And they've been saying, you know, that's what we do. And I didn't even know they existed because I was in the allopathic lane. And I do miss work, but in a way, I'm glad I'm not part of really what I view as a very sinister industry. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it's become. Hospitals have become killing fields. Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. It's really sad because I can remember as a kid doing volunteer work in the operating room as an 18, 19-year-old kid at a high school and looking up to – and I'm not saying – listen, there's good physicians. There's awesome physicians. There's probably more good physicians than bad ones. But I think, again, that that gets back to what we were talking about where the system has – 
forced a lot of physicians and censored a lot of physicians that if they don't keep their mouth shut, they're going to lose their job or their license or both. And there's a lot of physicians that are, I got to give them a lot of credit, are courageous enough to come forward. I know Dr. Jensen was telling me, Scott Jensen was telling me that I think it's 10% of the physicians today that are practicing medicine in the last three years have contemplated suicide, 10% contemplated suicide. So what does that tell you about their mental state right now? They got to put food on the table. They got to make house payments. They have to, they have all these expenses, but they're being pressured to have to really keep their mouth shut and not say what they really want to say or do. That's what's happening. And again, Physician employment, I think, is instrumental to that change. And I just want to tell you one thing is that physicians historically, every person I operate on, I would give my phone number if they wanted it. I, I wanted to know the problems after hours. I always thought, oh, you might get bugged too much, but you really don't because you develop a relationship with them. Sure. And I truly believed in the first through no harm and all that. And But I also think we have to be the advocates. You know, physicians have to be the advocates for the patients and they have to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And, and they have to fight when they have to fight. And after I was recently, I was on Fox and Friends. They, it was great to be on, okay, but it was 6.30 in the morning on a Sunday. But I got a lot of, first of all, five orthopedic surgeons across the country who contacted me that were also injured. And probably 20 physicians total that were injured and said, hey, I saw your spot. Thanks for speaking up. To one of the doctors, I, I said, we got to speak up. We got to say something. I said, you had to say something. Right. And she said to me, what she said to me just irked me, which was, you can't fight City Hall. That was her quote. <laughs> and that is exactly the problem. Right. Because if that's her opinion, she's useless. I Quit agree. Something else. You can't fight City Hall. Yeah, you can. Because yeah. if everyone did, we'd get our voices out there. This is very grassroots. So I think all these lawsuits that are ongoing are going to help uncover the truth, obviously through discovery. Our politicians aren't going to take the initiative to do anything unless they're threatened with their office. And they're not going to be threatened with their office until the masses tell them what to do. So I'm really hopeful for, I don't have any hope that the media is just going to wake up and start reporting all the truth that's going on and the good going on. They're not. But I think the lawsuits I'm hopeful through discovery will help wake up more people. I always call it the moldable middle. It's those people that are out there. They just don't, they want to support us. They're good human beings. They just don't know the truth. I'm sick of of the people that just call us conspiracy theorists. I can quote science and quote CDC numbers and they call me misinformation. Those people I don't spend my time with. And usually if I talk to someone, I can tell within 10 seconds if I'm going to continue the conversation because I'm not going to waste my breath on those people. They're just evil. Yeah, I agree. My hope is that the truth continues to get out. I do have hope. And in the last six months, I'll tell you, I think the winds have changed. I think so. And we got people, everybody knows somebody that had COVID and five shots. Almost everybody knows someone that got magically injured or had a heart attack or a stroke or an arrhythmia a week after their shot. So I think the tides are changing, but now it's time for action. Yeah, I know three people that died from the COVID vaccine. Personally, okay? Personally died from a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old, and a 65-year-old, all healthy, especially the 30-year-old. I don't know anybody that died from COVID. I personally don't. And if they did die from COVID and I didn't know them, they died in the hospital. They didn't die at home. But the three people that died from the shot died at home. So I don't know. What does that tell you? Maybe it's coincidence. It's horrible. (laughs) And that person might have had COVID uh, COVID like a year ago. And then that's they'll say, or in the medical record, they'll say it could have been from COVID, although their death was five days after the shot. It's people have lost their marbles. And uh, and that's why I just think we're up against something that's so much bigger than just greed and power. And it's just so evil. Oh, absolutely. It's good versus evil. But like you said, it takes a collective effort from all the different platforms, such as yours, this podcast and everyone to just band together and just push the information out there because we're up against a Goliath of a media and even organizations like the World Economic Forum and Bill Gates and all these people. They have unlimited money to spend on pushing their narrative. But if every person listening to your podcast 
did something, contacted a, a municipal office, went in front of you know them or went to a county board meeting or called the state about some state issues regarding the vaccine or mandates or work comp issues after getting a mandated shot or called their federal politicians. If everyone just did one thing, we could make a really big difference. And that's just the grassroots nature. Absolutely. And I encourage people, and I've now reached out to so many politicians, it's a pain in the butt. They don't like to get back to you. You just have to be persistent, and especially your their constituent, don't take no. Yeah. Thank you so much for your courage and putting this out there. The website is www.react19, the number 19, that is, dot org. So for anyone listening, that's the number 19. It's www.react19 react19, the number 19.org. Thank you so much, Doc. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And for your listeners too, we are a 100% volunteer organization. None of us get paid. We all, we only can do our mission with through donations. So if anyone's willing to donate, please donate through our website. So thank yeah, you, John. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll get you back on. I'll keep the audience posted and on updates. We'll have you come back on as things progress over the next several months. For sure. Yeah, I'd be excited to tell you about our progress with regards to the medical clinic, because I think that's going to be a really big thing, not only for the care of the injured, but also a very symbolic gesture. We'll see where it goes. Now, that'll be a donation-based type of clinic set up? No, we'll we'll have, the plan is to be primarily like a direct primary care model where we do charge for services. We're obviously going to have reduced charges for financial need. But we're blessed to have a single donor that is is really funding that clinic for the first year. This person who I can't name is just unbelievable. So nice. we're talking about a lot of money. Yep. But anyway, awesome. thank you so much, James. Thank I really appreciate thank it. Thank you for listening to the Medical Truth Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast at www.medicaltruthpodcast.com so you don't miss any future episodes and share with family and friends to keep them informed as well. Until next time.